Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show. I am very excited about this week because we are about to go on a little journey together, you and I. And it is a journey towards happiness. You might be aware that I have been doing an online course through the University of California, Berkeley on positive psychology, but perhaps more commonly known as the science of happiness. Now, it's a relatively young field. This kind of surprised me because if you think about pathology, neural pathology, and in other words, stuff like depression and anxiety and that kind of stuff, we have studied that for years. Uh, hundreds of years, people have been aware of that. But particularly in the Western world, understanding happiness and what causes a happy experience of life, well, there's just not as much information to back that up. So there was an element of curiosity there. But if I was to go deeper into why this field caught my attention in the first place, it actually relates to wider study that I've done on emotional intelligence in the last few years. In my observation, our culture does thinking very well. And by our culture, I'm talking about uh, Western culture. I live in a white middle class part of the North Shore in Auckland. So full disclosure on that front. I've noticed that we like to throw thinking at everything. We're very educationally driven. And when we look at the problems that society faces, we often say, well, education is the cure. And I love education. I love to learn. But I started to observe that we were living these parallel worlds, that people would be living in a sense of what they were thinking to do, but then sometimes their feeling wouldn't line up with that. And what do you do in that situation? I mean, think about it, really. What do you do? You know, those moments where there's something you know you're supposed to do, air quotes, supposed to do, but you don't feel in line with that. Do you completely ignore how you feel and just do that thing anyway all the time? Well, look, I've seen people who take that approach and it can generate results for you, but also it can lead you on a path where you overlook the stresses and strains that are happening on your body or a sense that you're not living authentically with what you really believe. And so that catches up with people. Or equally, you can say, oh, well, if it's between thinking and feeling, I'm going to go with what I feel all the time. And that also can create a bit of an unstable way of living. People who are high and low and don't know how their thinking and their feeling are connected together. It's a bit of a mystery. I feel like it's something that we've lost in the Western world. And so when it comes to happiness, I started to gain a greater appreciation for what our feelings really tell us. And if it's true that our feelings can give us an insight into our well-being, then subjective well-being or happiness, uh, as it's defined within this course, is actually an insight into whether or not you're really in balance, whether or not you're really in alignment with the things that are the most important, the things that are essential to human well-being. Now, it might sound a bit kind of high level right now, but if you wouldn't mind, if you can just indulge me for a bit, we're going to go into the opening um, opening lesson, opening section of this course today and just go through some of the findings here because what I originally thought might be nice to have but maybe a little self-indulgent, as the course went on I started to see that really understanding happiness is also a means of understanding what's best about being human, what's best about sharing this world with other people and how we can start to address some of the things that are real challenges in our world at the moment. In New Zealand in particular, we have quite a challenge around mental health and depression and anxiety. Well, maybe if instead of just being overwhelmed by the fears around how do we combat stress and anxiety, we started to become more aware of the things we can actively do to promote happiness, we may kill two birds with one stone. 
That's probably an unfortunate analogy, but you know what? Just go with it, okay? So this week, uh, the first things that we looked at within this course, um, I should tell you as I go along, by the way, um, I'm going to put some links as well in the descriptions for this podcast so that you can find where the articles are, or I'm going to be citing the experts who are referenced as this course goes along. So you can look these things up for yourself. I don't want you to just take my word for it. And I also want to get your feedback as we go. So you can always send that through to me at the Andrew Curtis show at gmail.com or maybe just get a discussion going in the comment field, okay? So the beginning of this course started with an interesting question and that was, what is happiness? There's uh, philosophical and spiritual views on that and uh, Dacher Keltner, who was one of the uh, senior proponents of this course, uh, also um, a professor of psychology at Berkeley and a part of the Greater Good Science Center uh, that is an offshoot of Berkeley's study as well, um, tackles this first topic. And he points out that this idea of positive psychology is relatively new. Um, other thinkers have been pondering happiness for some time, but not within the scientific sphere. We have people like in Eastern traditions where Confucius, for example, advocated a kind of dignity or reverence uh, as happiness, where you focus on looking after the well-being of other people. Uh, you have people like Aristotle in the classical Greek tradition who believed that happiness was about living a life of virtue, and it can only be judged when you look at your whole life together. Now, what started to change during the Enlightenment is that you had uh, utilitarianism and that advocated actions that were about bringing about the greatest happiness for the greatest number. And then uh, within the Buddhist tradition, you have the Dalai Lama preaching equanimity, compassion, kindness and detachment to alleviate suffering. So in other words, not attaching your sense of self too much to the circumstances you go through in life, but being able to observe them uh, and basically let them flow through. So in general, this is what I found fascinating here. The, the idea of happiness in Western traditions tends to be a lot more individualistic and high-spirited. You know, that idea of being up. And when somebody says happy, we almost expect that spring in your step and that sort of thing. Whereas in Eastern traditions, it's more communal and more calm. So the implication was that happiness is a little more selfish to the Western mind but it's a lot more communal to the Eastern mind. And I found that particularly fascinating because that makes it a lot more noble as well, right? There's something to be said for pursuing your own happiness that can sound, at least to me, like I found this within myself when I listened to it, it sounded a little bit indulgent or something like that. That was my, my gut feel. But to see that actually happiness is also a reflection or can be seen as a reflection of how well our societies and cultures are doing, it made it something much more noble. So I really kind of like that. Um, the next step was to understand then if we're going to be talking about this idea of happiness, how scientists define it and how they measure it. And again, Dacher Keltner picks up this part of the discussion and acknowledges that it could refer to a lot of things. So there's a sense that, you know, maybe your life is going well. That could be a way you describe being happy. It could just be a momentary emotion. It could be a trait that you've got or even just a sensation. Um, most of the scientists focus on the first two aspects. So that idea of life satisfaction and positive effect, which they combine together. And this is where this term subjective well-being comes from. That's another way that we look at it in scientific literature and when these kind of studies have been performed. So to study happiness, researchers observe behavioral indicators, things like 
facial expressions and that kind of stuff. Or there's even been some studies where people have been sent texts or beeped um, you know, on pages and things like that to ask how people are, which is what they call experience sampling. So the studies could be cross-sectional. They look at a group of people um, across a slice of time, or they call it longitudinal, where you follow the same people over a length of time. So that's another way you can study happiness. And they also do experiments in a lab to observe how different factors affect happiness. Uh, that term lab, by the way, it cracked me up the way they talk about it. Because in my head, I'm still thinking like when I was 15 at high school kind of lab. I think when they talk about lab, they're just saying like a controlled environment, as I understand it anyway. So this led into one of the first articles within the course. And again, blew my mind. So really, really cool. This time around, though, we have uh, Darren M. McMahon, M-C-M-A-H-O-N. And he wrote an article called Happiness the Hard Way. And this, wow. Anyway, I'll just start giving you an outline here and hopefully I'll get across the essence of why this was so impacting. So what uh, McMahon talks about is that before the late 17th century, people thought of happiness as a result of luck or divine favor. So if you were happy, you were lucky. <laughs> Maybe that explains the term happy-go-lucky. I just thought of that now. Uh, also, if you look at the word happiness in every Indo-European language, it comes from the word for luck. How interesting is that? So Greco-Roman languages are an exception, but they've got this idea of virtuous happiness. So that happiness that comes from doing virtuous kind of things, complete with effort and struggle and possibly pain. But that looks very different from the idea of happiness we have today, right? We tend to think of it as this um, as was mentioned earlier, this more sense of euphoric kind of being up, um, high-spirited, individualistic idea of, of looking at it. So what flows from that, from that late 17th century um, world until today, was that in the 17th and 18th century, there was almost like a happiness revolution. And in many ways, it was very positive because suddenly people began to believe that happiness was something that you could pursue. So it was declared to be natural. It was like a right. And the goal of life was to increase pleasure and to decrease pain. Now, that might sound, again, a bit indulgent to our current society. But if you go all the way back to that time there, where you literally just suffered through life and you couldn't do anything about it, if you were unhappy, well, it was either the, you know, the will of the divine that that was your way or, hey, bad luck, buddy. So to believe that you could improve your lot in life was quite revolutionary. However, there are always drawbacks to, you know, two sides to these kind of coins, rather. And namely, what it talked about was that it minimized the idea of the effort that happiness requires. And so we get frustrated when we get normal negative emotions. I loved that observation. It reminded me of uh, a gentleman by the name of Tim Keller. He is a uh, Presbyterian minister in New York. And he made the observation that in our culture, when we get unhappy, we're unhappy for two reasons. We are unhappy because of whatever made us unhappy. And then we're unhappy that we are unhappy. We believe something has gone wrong and there is hell to pay, right? But life experiences are full of a broad range of emotion. So this idea of happiness that started to emerge meant that we weren't really able to handle, we weren't as well equipped to handle the natural struggles and, and things that we go through in life. So uh, in some ways, positive psychology is about trying to find the balance between these. So this perspective of, of, yes, there being a life of virtue and certain things that need to be done to bring about happiness, 
um, but also this idea that happiness can be something that we experience day to day. And so they want to find that balance and reintroduce these notions of um, virtue and effort, but not in a striving kind of way, just understanding what naturally brings about the sense of subjective well-being. Um, because to me, again, full disclosure, I feel like there's something kind of trans uh, transcendent in these things that bring us happiness. They are virtues that speak to the well-being of all people. We're going to go into that in a more, more detail later on, but that's where I started to feel like, yeah, if we understand happiness and apply it correctly, we're actually going to start treating one another a lot better too. The next part of this led into an article by Jill Sutty and Jason March, and they talked about the difference between a happy life and a meaningful life. And again, I found this really interesting. There'll be a lot of disclosures for me as I go, so here's another one. I have observed that I earlier on in my life, I was quite intense about the meaningful side of things. I was very kind of hardcore about, you know, must change the world in, in three weeks or less kind of stuff. And I started to pursue that and if I wasn't happy, well, who cares? Because you know what? We're working towards something. And just sometimes you're just not happy. And that's just the way it is. Well, psychologists don't fully understand the relationship between happiness and meaning. Because on the one hand, the concepts are quite different. So you've got um, health and money and comfort, which all affect happiness, but not meaning. Um, happiness is often about the present, whereas meaning often encompasses the past and the present and the future uh, all together at once. So we derive happiness from receiving and meaning from giving. So we generally feel meaning but not happiness in the face of things like worry or you imagine, again, things like for parents and that kind of thing. In fact, that's a, a point that comes up a bit later on, so I won't jump the gun on that front. Um, but yeah, we get meaning in the face of things like worry and stress and anxiety um, all through self-expression. So combining those ideas of meaning and happiness into one concept can be a bit tough. Um, on the other hand, though, separating out those two concepts completely is also a bit tricky because meaning can make us happier. If I'm doing something meaningful, um, there's a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl who wrote one of the most impacting books I've ever read. It's called Man's Pursuit of Meaning, and it talks about how it is essential for us to have a broader sense of happiness to have meaning involved in that as well. So, um, you know, meaning can make us happier and happier people may be more capable of finding meaning. So I used that example of parenthood before, and that's one of the ones they cite in this article, uh, saying that becoming a parent in some ways makes you unhappier and yet also gives you more meaning, which can make you happier, right? So when you're sleep deprived and things like that, or when your kids are uh, misbehaving or whatever it might be in that moment, you're not happier, but the broader sense you are. Interesting, right? So there's a lot more work to do in understanding the relationship between these two concepts. But personally, I applied this by realizing that I needed to make sure I was pursuing both. Because you can pursue, from my perspective, I saw you can pursue meaning and see meaning as the most critical thing. But your experience of life is just labored and painful. And the, I don't know, the, the good times are always somewhere off in the distance. We'll get there one day. And something that comes up through this course is that ability to appreciate where you are right now and the things that you've received that make today special and memorable and wonderful. And that was that was just a good takeaway for me anyway. So as we move on and we want to get a fuller sense of, of what happiness is about, Emiliana Simon-Thomas, who is the science director at the Greater Good Science Centre, and again, um, shows up quite regularly throughout this course as well, talks about these misconceptions we have about happiness 
And one of the first things she says is that it's not just a, a happy-go-lucky state without negative emotions. And again, I think that's really powerful because being able to acknowledge how you feel without judgment is a skill that I did not have. I, If I was feeling bad about something, that it was do anything that I can to get away this sense of bad feeling. And it was compounded because of the reasons I mentioned before that I was unhappy and I was unhappy that I was unhappy or stressed and I was stressed that I was stressed or anxious that I was anxious. I hope that makes sense. That's kind of where I was at. So anyway, it's it's not about that. It's not about having no negative emotions or where all of our needs are met and we're constantly like blissed out. In fact, extreme positive emotions, and this is a point they make, which I think brings great balance, extreme positive emotions that are expressed in the wrong context. So too much of some positive emotions like say pride can be pretty detrimental. Um, and there's also no one size fits all strategy for happiness as well. This is something that's expanded on actually in the last section of this course too. But in terms of what's going to bring about the greatest increase in subjective well-being, what you will find is that it's going to be different for you as it is for other people. But is it possible for you? Well, we'll get onto that in a little while as well. So June Gruber um, complements this and balances this out with an article called Four Ways That Happiness Can Hurt You. And it talks about really cracking down on this idea that positive psychology doesn't advocate being, you know, unadulterated happiness all the time um, for several reasons. One of them is that it can be a, sim a symptom of mental illness, um, of mania. So when you've heard like manic depressive, the mania, manic, that's the, you know, excessive upness. Um, it also uh, is a disorder that inhibits creativity, which I thought was quite fascinating. Um, Barbara Fredrickson has found that too much positive emotion is associated with inflexibility in the face of challenges. And extreme happiness can also make us take undue risks since we focus on the positive and can miss the warning signs. So, you know, too much pride, a positive emotion in moderation, right? You don't want to be feel like you're completely worthless. So it's good to have a sense of pride in yourself also can be associated with aggression and antisocial behavior, less empathy, those sorts of things. So beyond that, there's also some contexts where happiness isn't appropriate. So negative emotions like anger and fear and sadness are normal and they're appropriate sometimes. If a, if a sad thing happens, you should be sad about it. I've seen some people who've tried to get into the state of nothing ever bothering them. And you end up in this weirdly detached kind of space cadet place. If you know somebody like this, you'll know what I'm talking about. And if not, well, hopefully it's not you. <laughs> um, but people who obsessed with only looking at the positive all the time, you see the blind spot in something like that, right? Um, and also too, when we set too high of a standard for happiness saying, you know, we shouldn't have these negative emotions, we often become disappointed when we don't meet it. And this connects with what I was saying before too, about being unhappy that we're unhappy. So we should pursue it in, in moderation. I think part of the wider application of this course is just to be more emotionally intelligent. And, um, you know, with the acceptance of the fact that there are going to be negative emotions and situations at the time. And, you know, how do we deal with those? So having laid this context, um, the next part of the course, which speaks to some of the, um, what would I call it? Some of my assumptions or some of my motivations for studying this um, is why it even matters. Like, why does happiness matter? You know, I, I mentioned earlier on, you can hear the topic of happiness. and go, ah, yeah, I mean, it's cool, but I mean, it's a nice to have, but do you have to have it? And that sort of thing. 
Well, this is where this idea of our emotional intelligence being connected to our physical well-being and being an indicator of wider balance and, and just being on the right track with something started to come together for me. So Dacher Keltner picks up this part again and says that happiness is associated, first of all, with greater longevity. So five to seven years for happiness when you're young or 20 months for happiness when you're older. Um, it's associated with better health from decreased chronic pain from increased immune activity, from better cardiovascular health and uh, a decreased likelihood of diabetes and stroke, cancer mortality and fatal accidents. So right away we start to go, gosh, this is more than just a, oh, I had a nicer day. If you knew it was going to have this kind of a benefit, you'd see the merit in learning about happiness too, right? But it's broader than just yourself because happy people also have better social relationships. They've got more friends. They're judged to be more warm and more intelligent, less selfish. And they also get more help from other people. You know, in a culture where people talk about everyone feeling alienated and, and the support structures around us breaking down, knowing that happiness increases the likely, likelihood of a person getting assistance or building trust, I think is quite key. Um, Happy people who get married are less likely to get divorced and they feel more love and fulfillment, which is cool. And finally, happiness can boost creativity and innovation for us and for those that we work with if we happen to be managers. So this idea of managing for happiness as well has started to gain traction in the last little while too. And it's cool to think of it as a tool for productivity as opposed to just a, a warm fuzzy, right? What if it's not a warm fuzzy? What if it's an essential to the human condition? That's the case that I think this course starts to make and, um, and that I do agree with. So, why be happy? This comes from a book called The How of Happiness. Um, in addition to above the, the stuff that I talked about before, happy people are also more sociable and energetic. They're more charitable and cooperative. Isn't that interesting? More charitable and cooperative. So in a world that we want to see everyone helping everybody else out, instead of approaching it with a sense of guilt and fear and you order, you know, to have happier people naturally results in more charitable and cooperative people. Um, these are people who also think more flexibly. They have more ingenuity. Um, they have higher salaries later in life as well. And more likely to, uh, by according to one study, happy female students were more likely to be married, married at age 27 and satisfied in marriage at age 52. So if that's something you're looking for, then there you go. Some good news. So on to the next part then. What what makes up our happiness? What can we do about it? So Sonia uh, Lubomirsky, who is a um, professor at UC Riverside, is also very much involved in this field of positive psychology. And she looks at research that says, according to the studies I've done, about 50% of our happiness is related to our genetics. You know, your genetic set point, your Myers-Briggsness, whatever you want to call it, your biochemistry. But then, you know how much of it is attributed to circumstances? I'll let you think about that. 10%. 10% of your happiness is actually your life circumstances. See, just that in itself I find fascinating. Because if you ask most people, how's your day gone? They'll usually look at the things that happened in their day. And based on that, if good things happened, they had a good day, they feel good. Bad things happened, they feel bad. Well, this starts to speak to the fact that actually those very circumstances are not as critical as we think they are, which is kind of cool to me because it means you're not bound by the things that happen to you from having a subjectively positive experience of life. So that leaves, for the maths whiz in the class, 40%. Uh, and that 
is affected by our intentional activity. So that's what we can focus on changing. We can do that by cultivating relationships uh, and philanthropy. We can do it through optimism, savoring what we're doing, uh, mindfulness, which is a topic that you might have heard a little bit about and that we're going to go into in a lot more detail later on. Um, even physical activity, spirituality, and the pursuit of goals. So those things together provide that 40% that we can improve in our state of happiness through intentional activity. We're going to have a drink of water. Is that all right? Mm-mm. So, onward and upward. Why study happiness then? Right? Like, this really gets down to the bones of it. Why does it matter? Why be happy? Why study happiness? Well, Jackie Keltner talks about this point and says that, first of all, we need to learn about this more than ever for several reasons. There are studies that are showing people are becoming more lonely. We have fewer close friends and a quarter of us, this is in America at least, but I wouldn't be surprised if New Zealand's very similar. A quarter of us have no close friends. One quarter, 25%. In a room of four people, one of them has no close friends. That's terrifying to me. And loneliness increases stress. Stress affects our health and our sleep. It makes us unhappier. So we're becoming more narcissistic. We look at ourselves, you know, the whole social media thing, right? Which goes hand in hand with having less empathy for other people. So all these things together, combined with the fact that inequality is also increasing. So the top 1% of society is still experiencing large growth in terms of wealth, where the rest of us are not so much. I mean, that's a big case study into what happened with the United States and their presidential elections. I'm not going to go into the merits of the result, but this is all stuff that's working together to say that if our happiness is suffering, you know, looking at those benefits that I talked about earlier on, if happiness is associated with greater longevity, then a lack of happiness means you've got five to seven less years on your life. You've got a higher risk of chronic pain and cardiovascular disease and diabetes and stroke and cancer and things like that. So it's more than just a nice to have. I really think understanding this is becoming an essential and it's something we all need to do. So as we move through, the course also outlines a happiness practice each week. And this is the one I'm going to share with you this time around. And it's just called Three Good Things. So to be happier, this has been proven scientifically to have an increase on people's overall subjective well-being. Just spend 10 minutes every night or every couple of days. The most important thing is to try it. <laughs> um, excuse me. Spend 10 minutes every night remembering three good things that happened during the day. So for everything, you write a title, the details about the event, including how you felt then and now, and what caused it. The thing about this is that it teaches us to seek out and savor positive things. It's been shown to increase happiness up to six months later. See, something that this starts to speak to as well and comes up in, in later weeks as well is that, you know, at any given moment, good things and bad things are happening to us, right? A diverse life is positive and the negative, but our experience of life can very much be shaped by what we're focusing on. And that's really what this is trying to tell you is that you don't actually need everything to be going well in your life to feel happy. In fact, you really only need one thing. <laughs> this is telling you to pick three. In my experience, you just need one thing. But equally, you only need one thing to be miserable as well. And if that's a choice that we can make, well, why don't we choose to focus on the good things, on three good things? 
So if you're going to give that a go, I'd be, um, I'd love to hear from you how that process went. So three good things. I'll read this out again. Uh, spend 10 minutes every night remembering three good things that happened during the day. For each thing, write a title, details about the event, including how you felt then and now and what caused it. And if you do that, let me know. I want to know what your experience of it has been like. You can email me at show at gmail.com. Okay, on to the next part. And um, we're going to start talking about what <laughs> what's joy got to do with it. Tina Turner. Uh, what's joy got to do with it? And Barbara Fredrickson, who I referenced earlier on, comes to the fore at this particular point. And she talks about the wider benefit that just positive emotions have on us. And the first is that it opens our hearts, our minds, and our perspectives. So in studies that she's performed, it shows that those experiencing positive emotions tend to uh, think more broadly, seeing global differences and similarities. Um, in fact, they actually expand their field of vision, people experiencing positive emotions. So looking at the background as well as the foreground, if you're wanting people to be able to capture the detail and not miss things, a more positive emotional state will actually help people to catch those kind of details. Isn't that cool? So it allows us to see more possibilities, more options, be more creative, that kind of stuff. Um, physicians who experience positive emotion um, have been proven to make better medical decisions. And really doesn't that suddenly make you think how important it is, important it is for us to resolve the challenges that our doctors and nurses are experiencing? I mean, if we want better care, imagine how simple it would be to say, well, what can we do to make these people happier. What have we thought about that? What have you thought about that in your own business? What would it take to make your people happier? Knowing that there was going to be a benefit in terms of their creativity and their positive thinking and, and um, sorry, their ability to solve problems and make better decisions. Um, we also have been proven to become more trusting and come up with better solutions to negotiations when we're experiencing positive emotions. The next step, which is really cool, is according to Barbara Fredrickson, again, positive emotions may even affect us on a biological level, the level of cell renewal. So to increase positive emotion, she recommends um, what's called loving kindness meditation, and we'll talk about that. Um, and people who do this experience increased mindfulness and resilience, so they get better health and relationships as well. So overall, this idea that dwelling on the positive affects us on a biological level, if you stop and think about it for a second, that's something that to me, has an element of folksy kind of wisdom about it. You know, if you focus on the positive, you know, accentuate the positive as the old song goes. Um, I think where we have gone wrong in our culture is where we get become so obsessed with the positive, we can't accept the negative. And that's going too far. But overall, seeing that, yes, being positive is not just a choice. It's not even... Because I've heard, like, negative people, people being cynical and stuff like that, saying, well, you know, it's just... Um, being a realist well it's not really that good for you buddy so interested to hear your thoughts on that one and be challenged on it too if you think uh think otherwise there but i'm seeing this more and more as being an essential that we all need so then the next writer that we look to is uh lana Cat uh, catalino catalino i hope that's the right way to say it so she distinguishes between two different ways to pursue happiness and i think this is really key for all of us by striving to feel good all the time or by striving to have more positive experiences. And I think you can probably guess which one has a more 
positive effect overall. So people who prioritize positivity try to do more activities they enjoy. They monitor their schedule rather than their emotions, right? Monitoring their schedule rather than their emotions. So according to a study of more than 200 adults, people who prioritized positivity have more positive emotions, fewer negative emotions, more life satisfaction, and fewer depressive symptoms. But here's the kicker. The opposite is true for people who try to feel good all the time. The upshot, well, you can let go of the constant need for happiness and instead trying to organize your weekend life around positive activities. See, there's an implication in this, which again excites me, because what it says is that happiness is a natural state for us, it's just that the mistake we've made is to pursue happiness as an end unto itself, right? So some of the things that get talked about later on in this course, things about kindness and generosity and gratitude and gratefulness lead to happiness. So if we pursue those things, we get happiness. But if we pursue happiness, we don't get that and we don't get the other virtues either. So isn't that cool to know that there's some scientific study that's starting to support how important it is to live your life that way? As we get towards the end of um, this week's material as well, there is some um, balance that they seek to bring about the pessimism and myths and misconceptions about happiness. So Sonia Lupomirsky again uh, talks about the pessimism about pursuing happiness because there are some reasons to believe we might not be able to change our level of happiness. So first of all, I mentioned there's like a genetic set point, that, that 50% that's about your biology, okay? Um, it's fair to say that happiness seems like a personality trait for some people, and some are more inclined towards happiness than others. Um, personality traits also aren't generally very malleable, at least intentionally in the short term. That's another fascinating study, by the way, in terms of what leads to personality traits and how changeable we really are. Um, also, there's a phrase that gets introduced, which is really interesting, called hedonic adaption. And that's just a really flash sciencey word for saying we get used to stuff. So it suggests that eventually we adapt to any positive thing that happens in our life and our happiness will return, return to its former levels. Here's the upshot though for me. When I looked at this kind of thing, right? Um, they, they did talk about saying, you know, if you think about things in the future uh, that are going to make you happier and things like that, we tend to fear negative stuff because we think we're going to be absolutely miserable. If you had to come up with a picture of what the worst thing is that could happen to you would be, right? How are you going to feel afterwards? It could be your health. It could be losing a job, the death of a loved one, something like that. Well, the interesting thing is that as bad as those things are, the interesting result of the research about these kind of things is to find that actually people do return to that set point relatively quickly after a majorly negative effect. It speaks a lot to what our built-in resilience, our psychological immune system actually is, that we can get back to that set point. Equally though, people say, well, you know, when this thing happens, then I'm going to feel amazing. I'm looking forward to that promotion or that holiday or that relationship or something like that. Well, equally, when it happens, we also return back to our set point after a period of time. Overall, this just speaks to me about intentionality. You know, there's no one silver bullet. And I'm excited as I think about it because it just speaks of savoring in every moment. The cool thing about life is there's enough variability and magic in it that you can find things to be grateful about if you want to or to be happy about if you're prepared to focus on them and look at them. So 
Coming into the last couple of points, Emiliana Simon-Thomas comes back to speak on this idea of what gets in the way of happiness and this idea of hedonic adaption, getting used to stuff. Um, well, there's a, a continuation of that thought because we fail to predict yeah, how quickly we'll adapt to positive and negative circumstances, which is called the impact bias. So as a result, we're very poor judges of what will make us happy or unhappy. Uh, and that's what they also call effective forecasting. So what what's going to make me happy? So we fear breakups, even though people have experienced them bounce back. We pursue wealth when after a certain amount, um, it doesn't actually give us a boost. In fact, that's fascinating, by the way. There's a study by, um, uh, gosh, Danny Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman. I probably can't call him Danny, um, that showed that actually money does make you happier up to a certain point. And once you get more than $75,000 a year in the US, there's almost no change in happiness. So basically, the amount of happiness that you get from going to, from $75,000 to $100,000 per year is about the same as if you went from $100,000 to a million per year. Fascinating, right? See, these days, wealth but not happiness is increasing with people. And we have very much bought into the idea that wealth brings happiness even though there's so much evidence to the contrary. And what I like about this too is it does bring a bit of balance, right? Like if you're only earning 30 grand a year and you go up to 50 grand, whoa, you're going to feel great. And in fact, um, I think it was Jim Rohn. Um, I heard actually a quote of his talking about money and he said, the best thing about having more money is that I didn't have to worry about it anymore. So I totally get uh, as you go through life and become more successful, to not have to worry about money is going to make you happier. But then beyond the point again, it's diminished returns, diminished marginal um, utility is what they call it. So as we look towards sources of happiness, there is a teaser that we finish on as well. And I would just share these with you that one of them is exercise. Another one is sleep. Another one is achievement. And the fourth is social relationships. And those are things that we're all going to get into over the next few weeks. So that brings to a wrap this first week's summary of the science of happiness. So again, I would love to hear your thoughts and feelings about this. What, what surprised you? What resonated with you? Uh, anything you want to challenge about it? I would love to hear from you. You can send through your thoughts to the Andrew Curtis Show at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing uh, from you and just going on this journey with you over the next little while. We'll talk again really soon. Have a great week. 